and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 108, recorded on June 2nd, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. I'm fresh off of Texas Linux Fest, and I think I even managed to avoid the uh, Fest hangover this time. I'm getting good at this, Joe. What do you say we kick things off with Hidden Wasp, some Linux malware? Yeah, this is quite an unusual bit of Linux malware in that it's not a crypto miner, and it's not just a botnet that's designed to do DDoSs and stuff. It seems to be fairly targeted and designed to take over machines completely. Yeah, it's not really about mining crypto. It's more about command and control. And I think one of the interesting things about this one, it's like three different projects mashed together into one Frankenstein piece of malware. That's not something we've seen a lot of. And some of it's from like open public code and some of it's from some well-known malware. And despite the fact that it's this Frankenstein based on known malware, most detection systems haven't been catching it. This is not really one of those stories we have to worry about your box being vulnerable. I mean, I, I suppose theoretically it's possible. But generally, according to initial research so far, it seems that the systems are already compromised in some way. And then this is left behind to use it, to manipulate it, to control it, and uh, not necessarily used to like steal CPU cycles or route mail or anything like that. And it's really kind of early days right now because we've only gotten a couple of files to look at, some, some bash scripts and whatnot. And they think that the main way that the malware is used is really just to kind of keep control of the systems that have already been ransacked. <laughs> Which I think is fascinating. Like, And it doesn't seem very professional either, does it? Because they've just mashed all these different things together to create this new hybrid beast. Well, isn't that the spirit of open source? Take existing stuff and uh, put it together to make something better? I agree. It's just the, the uh, article that we've linked in ours sort of tries to really kind of point the finger at China and, and as a state-sponsored state attack. But it doesn't really seem like it's very sophisticated. Like a state wouldn't necessarily just mash something like this together. They'd probably create one unified piece of attack code. Um, and at least traditionally, that's the case. Who knows? I mean, I'm just sitting here speculating because it's just one of these fascinating stories where it's not a big threat, but it's a weird beast that's going by undetected. And a lot of times that's the case with these vulnerabilities is people are chaining a series of vulnerabilities together. So you get onto the box and you get what you need, but then how do you retain control, right? Each one of those is an individual problem. Getting into the box, executing what you need done, and then retaining control. Three separate problems, and this is solving just the latter one. Well, it wasn't the only security issue this week. There's also yet another vulnerability in Docker. In the show notes, we'll have a link to a, a great write-up by Dennis Fisher, who breaks down both sides of the uh, argument here. You have the researcher's case, and then you have Docker responding, and I'll get to both of it too briefly. But... From a high level, the flaw is a weakness that results in a race condition in Docker. And there's already a fix that's in the works, but there's also a workaround you could already take advantage of. And like our previous story, you already have to be on the box to take advantage of this flaw. And I think that's really key here because with this particular flaw and the last one we just discussed with the malware, if somebody's already on your system and executing that code and has access to these things, you already messed up. Yeah. <laughs> just, you've, a line has been already crossed. <laughs> um, so it's funny, too, because this is like the simplest things, Joe. Check this out. It's a bug that's a result of the way Docker handles symbolic links. 
And it was discovered by security researchers that in some situations, an attacker can insert their own SIM link into a path during a very short time window. I'm saying like in some cases, a millisecond or so of a time window between the time that the path has been resolved and then the time that it's operated on. So this is a tiny, tiny fraction of time in in there. An attacker could add that link to something that's on the root file system of the host and, and get out of containment and get access to something on there. This happens when somebody executes Docker CP. That's when this opportunity um, comes up. Because when you run Docker CP, it's giving you rewrite access to the host file system. The obvious and super easy solution is, A, make sure your containers are secure, and B, pause the container when you use Docker CP. And that solves the problem. But that's not always possible when those containers are in production. Yeah, I suppose so. And it's not, that's definitely not ideal. I think Docker plans later on to upstream this as the default behavior in future releases of Docker, uh, even later this year. And what they'll do is it'll just be a very, very brief pause. So you execute the copy command, it pauses for a few microseconds, and then it completes, or however long it takes, and then it unpauses. But Docker doesn't seem to think this is that serious because it's such an edge case. And that's why they were kind of willing to let this vulnerability go out there into the wild before they had a fix ready for it. Yeah, the Docker official said in a statement that the attack scenario needed to exploit this vulnerability is, quote, rare slash unlikely, and that in the next monthly update, they'll have the fix merged. In the meantime, use Docker Pause, and in the future release, they'll have Docker Pause automatically. Well, this week saw a release of a bit of software that I have been using since the very beginning of my Linux journey. And I can't believe that after 15 years, it is finally getting to a 1.0 release, and that is Gparted. Such great software. Really have so much appreciation for this team, and it is so cool to see this happen after 15 years. And, (laughs) which, I don't know, at this point it almost feels like a meme. This release completes the migration to GTK 3. Yeah. (laughs) There's a couple other things besides just switching to GTK3, though, that jumped out at me. I thought this was one of the features that was already in there. Maybe I was running an early build, but they've added the ability to save your partition layout to an HTML file, which is really nice for documentation purposes. There's a couple of other noteworthy changes in here. Number one is they've improved the refresh of NTFS file systems. They say it's a fix for slow refreshing of NTFS. And then in the bug fix section of the release notes... They note, we've removed support for the ButterFS Progs utilities to manage the ButterFS file system. So it appears that they've removed, even if the underlying distribution has BTRFS Progs installed, they don't support it in uh, Gparted 1.0 anymore. I, I think that's what I'm reading here, Joe. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. But then again, who's using ButterFS these days? Uh, oh, yeah. I'm Sousa. Oh, besides, everybody knows the future is BcacheFS. Everybody knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think the reality is, at least for future technologies, Unity is looking really strong, and they have a brand new announcement for Linux users. We're not talking about the desktop environment for Ubuntu here. We're talking about the game engine, and they've announced that the Linux version of Unity Editor has got official Linux support now. I struggle to be excited because I've I've been underwhelmed by more Unity-based games than I have been excited by them, but it, it's also one of those Electron-style compromises, and I don't mean to uh, ascribe the performance comparisons there. I'm just talking about it's a bit of a um, 
what do you call it? Common denominator? Is that is that the right term? A common denominator where it's it's you can't really go all in because you're not writing natively for that platform. You're you're kind of targeting a, a common problem set. And that's sometimes good though, because it means it opens up the door to a lot more games. And it means that people can can actually now do some of that game production on a Linux desktop, which means more desktop users, but it also means these games might be just a little more refined under Linux now. It's probably not gonna take off like wildfire. But it appears they're doing this based on customer demand, which is a great sign, Joe. It is a good sign. And they have offered experimental and unofficial builds for quite a long time. But now it's good to see that because of commercial pressures, they're actually going official with it and they're going to properly support it. But it's not just for games, is it? There are other industries that can utilize the engine for various 3D stuff. Things like the automotive industry and, of course, the movie industry and even some manufacturing and stuff. And so it goes to show that even if gaming on Linux isn't massively big, those other industries are adopting Linux across the board. They've been using it on the server for a long time, but maybe more and more so on the desktop. So let's look at these desktop specs they have here. They want you to run either Ubuntu 16.04 or 18.04. So you need to be on one of the LTSs for the supported configuration. Your mileage may vary. Um, Or CentOS 7 is acceptable. It needs to be the x86-64 architecture. And here's an interesting requirement. GNOME desktop is a requirement running on X. No Wayland for you and no Plasma if you want, again, a supported configuration, and then they require you to use either the NVIDIA official proprietary graphics or the AMD Mesa graphics driver, and they recommend a full desktop form factor running on a device or slash hardware with no emulation or compatibility layers, so my PCI pass-through setup is out. (laughs) I'm sure that XFC would be fine with this, but... (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But realistically, they have to set some standards here and say these are the supporter configurations and these are what we recommend for a best experience. Yeah, it's kind of impressive. It's not just Ubuntu 16.04, end of sentence. Yeah, that's true. Um, And it sounds like it is going to work perfectly well on other systems, but they just have to set some standards, don't they? they? They can't support every last Linux distro and desktop environment and configuration. Oh, you said standards, Joe. You know how that triggers me these days. The browser vendors are applying more and more leverage over W3C, the folks that are supposed to be setting the standards for the World Wide Web. But, of course, without the browser vendors being on board, they don't really have much leverage, do they? You can't really set a standard if uh, the people that would implement them aren't on board. Well, yeah, and this goes back years. The uh, Web Hypertext Application Technology Working Group or I don't, well, how would you say the acronym? Woodwig. Woodwig, yeah. <laughs> That's been around since 2004 and has almost been battling with the W3C. You've got the browser vendors on one side trying to set the standards and W3C on the other side, and it's kind of gone back and forth. And now it seems the W3C has just kind of folded on this and just accepted the reality that they are going to be dictated to by the, the browser manufacturers. This has been a long time brewing, like you said. I mean, I, I don't know how else it could have gone down because if you've got Apple, Mozilla, and Opera 
and generally Google working outside of what the I'll give you an example actually. So this is a this is one of the better examples. The W3C really wanted to kind of convert the web over to XHTML so everything would have an XML like structure which then the browsers would render for you, but they hated the idea. The browser vendors hated the idea. And from that rebellion against that idea, this is Chris paraphrasing here, we got the HTML5 standard, which then later on, the W3C later formally approved as the next major iteration of the HTML web standard to sort of make nice with the browser vendors because they were putting the support behind it and things were going in the right direction. But this week, things have taken a major shift. In a press release, the W3C and the Whatawig <laughs> announced that they were finally putting their differences aside and signed a new, quote, memorandum of understanding. That's certainly one way to put it, yeah. Yeah. They say, per this new agreement, the W3C is officially giving up publishing of future HTML and DOM standards in favor of Whatawig, again, that's W-H-A-T-W-G, that group, effectively giving them full control, which really means the browser vendors having full control. Which ultimately means Google having most of that control. I do wonder about that. I do wonder if we'll look back in uh, like, you know, 2025 and look back at May 28th, 2019 as the day where something major shifted and the standards. But, you know, that, that body, that group, also Microsoft sits on there, Apple sits on there, Mozilla's in there, Opera's in that conversation, um, really isn't the solution now just to, to open that group up a little more? Because at the end of the day, if they're the ones writing the software, they always they always had ultimate control. The W3C has just sort of been a, I mean, it's a theater piece in a way. They can make good suggestions, but if Firefox and Google alone decide not to do it, it's like they're effectively powerless. Well, yeah, and the market will just go to whatever the most popular browser is. Already we're in a situation where some sites just don't work without Chrome. Source Connect, for example, is a web app that we sometimes use in production that requires Chrome. It's just got that hard requirement. And I don't really understand why all that underlying technology ought to work in a standards compliant browser like Firefox, but it just doesn't. There's some interesting parallels here with the free desktop standards and the conversations going on around the desktop and theming for Linux. In fact, I bet you a listener out there knows the perfect XKCD comic. They could tweet me at Chris LAS that it's like we set these standards and then we get all the support behind them and then everybody goes off and does their own thing and then we all decide the standards need to be redone completely all over again. Um, and I don't, it's almost like what's the effing point? I mean, not to uh, curse on your show, Joe, but what is the effing point of it all? At the end of the day, it's like people just want to sit around and make stuff up and then people go off into their own corners and do their own thing anyways. <laughs> I find it frustrating. Yeah, 927, by the way, is that XKCD you're thinking of. Oh, okay. okay. How standards proliferate. Yeah. Oh, there's that's a good one. But I feel like there's another one where it's we all go off and make standards and then throw them out. And I'm not talking about a standard for our standards either. That's not what we need here. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about Texas Linux Fest then. How's that been going? Yeah, Texas Linux Fest was two days here in Irving, Texas, Irving, uh, which is kind of nice because it's only about 30 or 40 minutes from the Linux Academy office, so I was able to shoot over here to do the show today. It was good. Friday was kind of kind of slow. Like, it, it, um, it is typically, you know, when it's a work day, like that first day is usually a little slow going, but by the second day, it's all the people you saw on Friday plus a new batch of people, and they kicked off with, uh, a, a, I think it was uh, Thomas Cameron is his name, I believe. He's a, a local lug member here, and... Um, 
just gave a killer keynote. Uh, both Elle and I just looked at each other after the keynote and was like, that's one of the best talks we've ever attended at any conference ever. It was really good. Um, and we got the audio for it. So I'm going to see if uh, we can release it. And we got some video of it for them too. So we're going to try to help them release it on their own channels as well. Um, and it was at the same time, um, you know, there was a few, there was a few bumps here and there, but as far as a community event goes, there's something kind of special around the 300 number because you see the same faces five or six, seven times over a weekend. And by day two, everybody kind of loosens up a little bit because you've been around each other. You've, you've kind of gotten all the social awkwardness out of the way. And so day two is really casual and sort of a, a very friendly atmosphere. And uh, so I, I just, I really enjoyed the heck out of day two. And we got a hell of a thunderstorm here. It was raining and lightning, like, like only Texas can provide. It was quite the show. And um, we had some great meetups, got to, got to good, some good beer, some good food, some good company. So all in all, I'm very, very glad I made it down. And um, I hope they keep growing. I think they might try to go back to Austin possibly, but I hope they keep it up because it's like, it's like that, that plucky little conference that you want to see keep going and grow. And what was the kind of topic trend there then? Was it all about cloud and hybrid cloud and corporate stuff, or was it much more community, desktop type stuff? Hmm, good question. You know, I hadn't, really, I hadn't really kind of thought about it, but as you were asking, I kind of went through it all. And I'd say my first, my first hot take on that question would be, it was fairly container-focused and cloud-focused, but not in like the buzzy commercial cloud sense, but in the... Um, I'll give you an example. Like the first talk that was really well attended of the day was about going from a total noob with Ansible to going to Brilliant. And it was a workshop talk. So about halfway through the talk, the author takes a 10-minute break, puts up the download URLs for virtual machines and to get configuration files going. And then for the rest of the talk, you work along with the presenter and get Ansible working by the end of the talk. And so it was that kind of stuff. And um, there was several of those workshops each day which are very valuable. And there was, um, there was a really good message underneath it all. And it is, you could be a Linux sysadmin today and that's, that's a really good living. And you've probably got like a good solid 10 years where that's going to be a great living. But at some point, the Linux admin is going to go the way of the Unix admin. And that is to say, not going away completely, but becoming much, much more of a niche job. And what is going to take over is a cloud admin. Now, what does that mean? That's a lot of things. That's understanding networking. That's understanding Linux basics. That's understanding storage and network storage. That's understanding network fundamentals. That's understanding how data centers work. That's understanding how these services work and how to interface with them. It's a very complex job. But the awesome thing is, is if you're already a Linux admin or you're even if you have a basic understanding of Linux, you're in a really good position to leverage that knowledge to pick up those other skill sets and have a really complete skill set resume. And so you're, you're in a good position for the next 10 years. You just have to act on it and learn and train yourself up. It sounds like a really cool conference then. I might have to try and make it over for next year. Especially if you like to eat, because there's always really good food in Texas, Joe. <laughs> As my stomach will tell you, it's just a little bit bigger now. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit of breaking news that uh, we don't have much info on. It's happening as we record. This seems to happen every every Sunday when we record, doesn't it? And that's that Google Cloud seems to be down. Yeah, which um, is affecting things in, in weird ways on the internet right now. So, of course, it's a big topic of conversation. But at the moment, we just have Google status page. Not a lot of information about what's caused the outage or exactly how widespread it is. But what we do know is I'm 
in Texas and Joe's in London, and we're both impacted by the outage right now. Yeah, the document that we used to do this show has been kind of connecting and not working. It's working right now, but it's been hit and miss. So, yeah, it's not sure how bad this is yet. But if it does turn out to be a bad one, then maybe you can follow up on Linux Unplugged on Tuesday. Yeah, if we find out something interesting, I will do that. I will do that. You know, Joe, sometimes it's just worth self-hosting these kinds of things. <laughs> maybe this is our lesson. <laughs> I know Nextcloud is starting to look more and more attractive to me. Well, we'll keep an eye on all kinds of things throughout the week and report them here for you. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And speaking of getting trained up, we've released the Don't Be Famous, Learning Kubernetes and Securing Your Cluster talk, which is up on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Broadcasting. A great introduction to getting Kubernetes secured away and an information-packed talk in general. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.